This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the Harvey Keitel to my William Hurt, Perry Seibert. How are you doing, Perry? <laughs> oh, yay! All I've ever wanted to be is Harvey Keitel. <laughs> I'm so excited. You know, I saw, I watched, uh, my Father's Day ended uh, exactly the way all Father's Day should this year. Um, I watched Mean Streets. I showed it to uh, Emma, my oldest, okay. who had never seen it before. Uh, and we're about halfway through and uh, we paused it for some reason, go to the bathroom, something. And we were sitting back down and she looked at me and said, you know, Harvey Keitel's hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right. All right. Yeah, I'm good with that. Yes. You go, girl. You're raising them right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, Perry, how have you been? I've been good. I've been watching Mean Streets with my daughter. That... I couldn't be better, Chris. How are you? I, I watched 1941 alone. <laughs> well at least you didn't at least you didn't hurt anyone else i i appreciate that that you cared enough but other than that i am very excited uh to be here we are continuing our five from 95 series um and we are going to be talking about wayne wang's smoke um but before we do that we usually get into what we've been watching lately um but perry i know you are a big academy awards fan and it was recently announced that the Academy Awards are going to be held in April of 2021 because of the pandemic. And I was curious, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's not so much that it's moving to April. It's that they're extending the entire thing two months. So the eligibility period for films mm -hmm. is now extended to February 8th of 2021. And uh, while I think that's glorious thinking on behalf of the Academy, uh I personally am of the belief that unless there, there's some sort of actual medical cure or protection for us, this is not going to be happening. I, 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 I don't see how there will be <laughs> – that this will be safe or a reasonable thing to do. Uh, I, the math I don't understand is you know, at what percentage do the theaters need to be open to make releasing the movies worthwhile for the studios? Sure. I know that Tenant wants to be the first one out of the gate, but I can't believe Warner Brothers is going to release that if they can only sell 25% of the possible movie tickets they could sell. Uh, I, I just don't see how. I, 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 <laughs> if everything changes and we can all go back to the theaters and the risk level is the same that it is uh, when we're talking, because I don't assume that as we're recording this, Chris, it couldn't be completely different in two, three weeks. Uh I, I don't I don't see how that's at all feasible. I think the Academy would be real smart to and I think like they will, I think like eventually they will just have to cancel the year. And I think you just allow for two years worth of stuff. I think you just extend out the uh, the acceptable movie release dates and and chalk it up to that. I, I, I think that's the I, I think that's where it will go. Uh because I, again, as we've talked about over and over, I don't understand how 
until production can ramp up again to its full degree, you're always going to have less material that will be mm-hmm. eligible. So I don't understand. I, you know, it's great to talk about, well, let's say there's a cure in a year and a half. We could have one at the end of the year and then do one again real quick, like four months later. I don't think so. I don't understand how that's going to work. Um, so I, I would love it if it happens. If it happens, that means the world is much more back to normal than I expect it to be. Uh, but I am, I, I am dubious that that will actually be the case. I kind of feel the same way. Um, you mentioned, you know, these theaters are not going to be to anything near capacity. I think AMC, their uh, their plan is 30% capacity. But that's just the United States. You figure, especially these movies by Warner Brothers or Disney, they depend on that global box office. And, you know, theaters might open here a little bit at a time. But if you don't also have that European, that China box office you're going to lose a lot of money. So I don't know at what point it makes fiscal sense for them to say, you know, let's open it up and, uh, you know, at least we'll make a quarter of what we spent. Um, and then you, you factor in something like Tenet, which Christopher Nolan, yeah, wants to save the movies. But um, he's also a very big on spoilers getting out for his movies. And if you release this before half the world can see it, he's not going to be too thrilled about that. Um, no. And, yeah, I I don't know. I'm a little more optimistic that maybe we'll see some open barring a second wave in uh, September or October. But again, that's barring a second wave. And I don't think we've managed the first wave very well. Um, so so I'm not overly hopeful um, from a personal perspective. I, I assume that if uh, if Oscars are pushed back and eligibility is pushed back, that means critics groups might be pushed back a little bit. And I do have to admit that sitting around with a stack of screeners in January and February is much preferable to sitting around with a stack of screeners at Christmas time. Um, so, so there's a part of me that feels a little okay with that. Um, but also, I, I don't know. There's a part of me that feels like if they are going to have an Oscar, so if they're dead set on that, then do it on the films that were released this year, even if they were released online, which they did change the eligibility for that. Um, but you have a lot of indie films that were the only shows in town this year. And there, there's a chance for a really, I don't want to say a memorable or great Oscar ceremony based on what was released, but it would definitely be interesting. Um, you know, you would see someone like Ben Affleck maybe having a shot at a nomination for, uh, for the way back, which uh, is a performance I really liked or, um, you know, some of these smaller films that were released earlier in the year uh, and, you know, having some of these smaller, quirkier films get more of the conversation than they have instead of having it lumped in with a, you know, everything released in January and February. Um, you know, but then again, you're also uh, you're also making sure that a Martin Lawrence as best supporting actor for Bad Boys for Life does not happen. So, um, <laughs> which as of which right I, now, which I think we'd all feel really good about. I got I got to be honest. As of right now, end of June, Bad Boys for Life is the highest grossing movie of the entire year, which is just weird. Um, And I say that as someone who had a good time with Bad Boys for Life. But, uh, you know, (laughs) if that is the pinnacle of our movie year, that's that's sad. Um, And again, my last film, (laughs) my last film in a theater was Sonic the Hedgehog. So, uh, yeah. 
yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a winner in this situation at all. Um, I think you're right. This eventually just doesn't happen. Um, and we look at a extended Oscar season in the next year, which could be a fascinating thing to try and figure out. But yeah, you bring up a good point with, uh, if you look at TV right now, they're, they're anticipating a programming drought, uh, starting in about September. And I can't, you know, unless, unless we want a bunch of, you know, zoom themed movies to be filling screens. I don't, I don't know. And we do not, we do not, uh, (laughs) you know, I don't know what we're looking at. Um, it's fascinating. It's weird. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, but we are going to take a break from talking about our hellscape of a year that is 2020. And we are going to go back to a simpler time, uh, back to 1995 to continue our series on, uh, five from 95, five films we really enjoyed from 25 years ago. Um, and we have previously covered David Fincher seven and Kevin Smith's, Mall rats. Uh, <laughs> Perry, you chose this week's uh, this week's film, so I'm going to let you take it away with why you chose Smoke, a movie I had not heard of until you suggested it. Uh, because at the time, it was my favorite movie of 1995. Okay, a film. That, so I forget my top ten list from year to year pretty quickly. I don't remember. I don't care. Top tens are a snapshot. They're not, they're not supposed to be carved in etched in stone. Even Sight and Sound has the decency to every 10 years do a new poll to find out what the greatest film of all time is. Things change. Um, that said, for whatever reason, Smoke, Seven, Casino, and The Usual Suspects, and Sense and Sensibility, I have been able to retain forever from 1995 uh, because I love all five of them a great deal and for different reasons. And at the time smoke was my favorite film of those five. Uh, and it still very well could be on any given day. I'm probably willing to give seven the nod these days. Uh, but I still think smoke is a glorious movie. It is made by Wayne Wang. Actually one of the few films you'll ever see where the film by credit is shared by the director and the screenwriter. Wayne Wang let Paul Auster uh, share the film by credit at the beginning of the movie because it's adapted from a short story that Paul Auster wrote that was originally published uh, in the New York Times on Christmas Day called Augie Wren's Christmas Story. And uh, Smoke is uh, your quintessential mid-90s indie mm-hmm. uh, distributed by Miramax, and it's about it's about people talking. It's, <laughs> it's about people hanging out and talking. And because it's by Paul Auster, who is one of my very favorite novelists, it's not only about stories, but it's about the stories we process, the things we need to process. That's what all of his works are about. And uh, and this is this is no exception. Harvey Keitel and William Hurt, uh, I think they're the co-leads. I think mm-hmm. that's a safe thing to say in the movie. Uh, Harvey Keitel plays the owner of the local smoke shop in Brooklyn, where all the characters live and hang out, and where Paul Auster lives as well. Uh, William Hurt plays a writer who had, uh, had a, a traumatic thing happen in his past, which we learn about fairly early in the movie. And it is about... Uh, that classic phrase, the intersecting lives of all the people that show up at the tobacco store over the course of, I think, about a year. I think it's about a year in I real time right. that the movie takes place over. Um, yeah. And I, I, I remember seeing it in 1995 uh, and ju- just, ju- just jaw-dropping fell in love with it 
<laughs> right away. I think I saw it at least three times in the theater. And uh, I have uh, have I have committed much of it to memory ever since then. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I like I said, I had never heard of this film before. Um, I would have been in 1995, depending the time of the year it was released. I would have been a uh, sophomore or junior in high school. So this probably wouldn't have been the the movie I was running off to see with my friends. Um, so I can kind of see it, it's a smaller indie film, like you say. I can see where. Maybe it just would have been bypassed by me. Um, and when I looked it up after you had recommended it, there was a part of me that got a little nervous because I'm like, oh, it's about people hanging out at a tobacco shop. Is this uh, <laughs> is this pretentious clerks? Um, you know, and, and and I I have to say from the first scene in this movie, which is this uh, it, it's a conversation, but it's really a pretty lo- pretty lengthy monologue by William Hurt's character about the history of smoking in in England. Yes. And it is so beautifully written. Like the the dialogue yeah. at that moment is so beautifully written, but in a way where the wrong actor would totally derail the movie and William Hurt is the right actor. I I just I ate this up. Um the the movie's actually yeah bookended by two fantastic monologues um, by mm-hmm. William Hurt and Harvey Keitel. And it, it, it's it been a long time since I've watched a movie and just loved to listen to the language. Um, you, can, yeah. you can definitely tell Paul, Paul Oster, you know, is a writer. And I didn't know that when I saw that. I didn't know much about the movie um, until afterwards when I looked up who was involved. Um, I am not very familiar with Paul Oster's work. Uh, I would like that to change after this movie um, because it is a really delicate, beautiful little screenplay that if you just if you don't have the right people in there, they're going to you know, those words are going to sound wrong. They're going to sound pretentious or overly flowery, flowery. But if they hit it right, which they do in the movie throughout, then it's just a beautiful thing to sit and listen to and to take in and a very warm movie like it's a very very warm is the word that keeps coming back it is a friendly movie it is a movie where i like to see the characters interact um i I think uh william hurt is fantastic harvey wow i can't talk today harvey keitel is fantastic (laughs) um forrest whitaker is fantastic forrest whitaker is fantastic It's the first time I ever saw Harold Perrineau Jr. That's that's who's what I was gonna say. A yes. Really good actor, and he's fantastic here. Ashley Judd's great in it. This it's just a, it's just a, a it's it is an actor's showcase through and through, and and it is it is a bunch of scenes that a bunch of of scenes that could be mistaken for showstoppers mm-hmm. that are you know supposed to be these grand moments, and they are but they aren't they're so they're all delivered conversationally there's no big histrionic moment and even when there are a couple of those they're undercut almost immediately by something really funny uh-huh. or really just out of the we- unexpectedly normal <laughs> yeah that grounds it all again and it's so it's it's just yeah i i, I can i can gush and get stupid about this movie uh, Harold Perrineau, I, I was most familiar with him from Lost, uh, so it kind of clicked when I saw him show up. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Michael from Lost. Um, 
but he he plays this young man who crosses paths with William Hurt. Um, and, literally, and, yeah, literally, <laughs> and and they form this relationship that in any other movie I've seen is always you know this kind of paternalistic. Uh, you know, old man teaches the young man how to grow up and get his life together. But Rashid, just Harold Paranoff's character, he goes off on his own his own movie after that, and where he mm-hmm. goes is just as fascinating and just as it's a it's a plot line that could have been overly dramatic. And he connects with Forrest Whitaker, uh, who he has a history with. And that does not go where I thought. Uh, it, it sets up, like you said, these big, dramatic screaming matches that don't happen. And it's because the characters feel real. They respond like real characters would. And they they kind of roll with the uh, the new information they're giving given. And I don't, there's just a sense of goodwill among every relationship in this movie. Um, Harvey Keitel. I, I haven't seen him quite like this before, where he is... This warm yeah. and lovable of a character, just, just a, a he's a <laughs> good guy. He is a good person, not because he's saintly, not because he has no flaws, but there is a warmth to Augie that uh, I, I found very endearing. Um, that monologue at the at the final scene of the film is just a one shot on him telling a story that I didn't check, but has to be about ten minutes long. Just him. It's a full mag, and the camera dollies in so closely. It pushes into his face slowly, consistently. And it is, it is, in the best sense of the word, hypnotic. It's a fantastic story that he tells. Yeah. And and we see that later on, like shortly after, we see a recreation of what he's been talking about. I didn't need that either because the way he sells that moment is so good. That I had that story playing in my head as he's telling it, and and yeah, yeah. You know, when it plays out over the credits, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I had in my mind. Um, but it's also yep. the sense at that scene where that movie, where the scene ends, where the the movie ends with Augie telling that story to uh, to Paul's character or to Paul. It, it works because it's not just Harvey Keitel giving a hell of a performance. It is these two characters who kind of start off as acquaintances throughout the movie, build this friendship. And by the end, it's just that comfort where they are telling their secrets to each other. They are comfortable enough Mm -hmm. to let it spill, which is what this movie is about. It is finding those people you are comfortable sharing those stories with and the story of your life with. Um, And I kept waiting. I, I kept waiting and dreading the moment where everything would click at the end and you would see everything is connected and snaps into place very cleanly because that is what a lot of these type of movies do that balance multiple plot lines like this. And I was so relieved that it never happens, that there are, there are some threads. We don't, we don't get to see the full resolution. We don't, they're not connected by anyone, but, uh, but Augie, you know, and they might just be his story that he's dealing with while Paul and Rashid are dealing with something else. Um, And and I love the fact Mm -hmm. that, they don't need to line that up. It, it it feels more real. It doesn't feel too smart for its own good. Um, yeah, like like I said, I had never heard of this, and I walked away just uh, very happy to have seen it. Uh, it. It's the type of movie that you just you kind of feel a little uh, 
little happier when you're done watching. Yeah, it's a, it is everything that is, it is everything an American indie should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is if you if you are uh, if you are unfamiliar with the work of Paul Auster, I can't recommend his novels enough. Uh, uh, they all deal with, like I said, they're all they're all they're all at some level about storytelling, quite in, in a very meta way. Uh, the, you know, the characters in them tell stories, and they're often stories about stories. And, and uh, there's a bunch of the stuff that is, if you're familiar with his novels, is the sudden acquisition and loss of a, a huge chunk of money. Okay. Figures prominently in so many of his films. Money is used as a metaphor for for luck in, his, in, his, in many of his novels. Uh, fathers and sons come up uh, repeatedly. Uh, and yeah, it's the, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I would recommend to you, Chris, if you're truly interested in digging in, um, probably my favorite book of his is a, is one called the book of illusions. Paul okay. writes really, really beautifully about movies in his books. And I don't mean, I, I, I mean, I do sometimes literally talking about a real movie in his books, but he uses movies and people who are drawn to movies and he can describe movies in really great ways uh and so i would i would i would start you off there i'm not saying it is his very best but it's the one i tend to return to the most and it's got uh it's got almost it's probably the biggest cinematic influence on it um that's a really great one and i would encourage you then to look up if you've never heard of him i would encourage you to seek out another earlier uh 90s indie oh is it earlier i think it came out before um, one of his novels was actually adapted into a movie uh, called The Music of Chance. Okay. Great book, very good movie with uh, James Spader and Mandy Patinkin. Okay. That uh, I, again, it's, it's it will they, they make for they make for a fine double feature. Uh, Smoke to me is, is much better, uh, which is not to say The Music of Chance is bad. Just to say, <laughs> I think Smoke is Smoke is one of my very favorite films ever. Uh, and uh, I, I would encourage you to seek that out. It's a, a very strange little tale about uh, an obsessive gambler and a guy who meets up with him and they end up uh, uh, sort of in a state of indentured servitude making a wall. Yes, it sounds very Waiting for Godot-ish because it is. But, but it's also really odd, and very funny and a great, great James Spader performance. Uh, I saw the music of chance before I ever read the book. And there's a sequence in the movie where Mandy Patinkin's character, uh, sings like part of an aria. And I assumed when I saw the movie, Oh, well they did this. This can't possibly be in the book. And Oh, it's totally in the book. It's absolutely in the book. It's right out of the book. (laughs) And that's, 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 that can happen in the fictional world of Paul Auster. So as we were talking, I actually went over to Amazon and I added the Book of Illusions into my Kindle. Uh, so I am going on a vacation in a week, uh, and uh, yeah, I need some reading, and that that sounds like a good place to start. Uh, I was really taken with just the little details that he builds about the characters that don't necessarily have a quote unquote payoff. Um, I, I love that Augie takes the pictures every day of of the outside of the shop. And just, you know, whoever ventures into the frame that day ventures in and makes it into that picture. And early in the film, um, 
William Hurt's character finds that one of the people in his picture was his wife, uh, who who died. And I, again, kept waiting for some little payoff, some little way to connect that. And it doesn't. It just is a nice way to draw them together. And, it, uh, you know, it gives you some shading into who William Hurt's character is and who Augie is. But there's not a need to just connect that to a bigger point at the end, which I, I appreciate. It. it just it feels real. Um, I, I think Forrest Whitaker is fantastic in this, too. Uh, yeah. He he has... He has maybe one of the best uh, family picnics I've seen in a movie um, <laughs> where I, I don't think he says two words the entire scene. It, he sits there quiet for most of that scene, but he just he's such a presence in that. Uh, and it, it's a fantastic moment. Uh, Stocker Channing is really good to watch. I mean, I could just list everyone in this movie and they're good. It. it yeah. really surprised me. Um, it's a bunch of amazing actors doing amazing work because they have an amazing script. <laughs> yeah. And I was curious, um, this film, was this nominated for, this wasn't nominated for Best Screenplay, was it? I, no. No, it was not. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to It was up. far too, it was far too tiny and indie. That although I did look up, it made uh, I think like four times back its budget. It it made thirty eight million, which is not not anything to sniff at for an indie. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I was really surprised I hadn't heard of this. I was very surprised to hear that it also had a sequel come out that same year. Um, yes, blue in, blue in the face. And how is that? I have not even heard of that one either. So blue in the face was truly they had like. They had shot, so they shot a bunch of stuff of the guys who hang out at the at the cigar shop regularly, just kind of hanging out. And even that cast, I mean, that's Giancarlo Esposito is one of those guys. Um, the the kid, the the seemingly uh, mentally off kid who sweeps up out front is Jared Harris. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really an amazing cast. And they had so much fun making the movie that they talked – they basically talked Miramax into letting them have like another $500,000 to make – it's not a sequel. It's it's sort of a companion film okay. that was completely improvised. Oh, and okay. And I okay. mean literally there's no plot. Like it's just people hanging out telling stories. And um, uh, the highlights of Blue in the Face include uh, Jim Jarmusch shows up uh, <laughs> and has a very funny speech. Uh, Lou Reed shows up. It tells a story. Um, it's very loose and very ramshackle. It is nothing you need to seek out. It is not. It is not a sequel. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to put that much weight on it by any means. It is this little curiosity that, again, is everything you want an indie film to, to do to just play and have some fun. And that's all it is doing. It is. It is of absolutely zero relevance. But if you adore smoke as much as I do, you know, you might want to check it out eventually. I, I had a uh, critic. There's a critic I follow, Jeffrey Overstreet, and I wanted to see if he had seen this. Um, so I went on his letterbox. He had seen it. He really enjoyed it. And he mentioned that, oh, this is a movie that it makes sense to bring back and do as a TV show. And I usually cringe no. at, at ideas like that. Um, but there is a part of me that thinks I would love to linger on these characters, more or similar characters. Um, but also it is. It's a very delicate thing like this is a i I kept coming back to the idea that this screenplay in the hands of anyone else in the hands of anyone who is not this cast or this director 
would could land very badly. Uh, you know, it, it could be a very overdone thing, and it just you can just you can just feel like this. Everything feels right in it, and I keep coming back to that. But uh, it it, it just, it's a movie that just left me with a feeling of just being very happy and and, and enjoying time with these characters. And yeah, I'm yeah. looking I'm looking at the screenplay nominees for '96. So would this have been an, an adapted screenplay or a uh, original? Yes. Okay, it would have been adapted. So the winner that year was Sense and Sensibility, um, and the other nominees were Apollo Thirteen, Babe, Leaving Las Vegas, and The Postman. Yeah, it's better than four of those movies. Um, and... <laughs> it's a better script than four of those scripts. Three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I. Wh- do you have anything else to say on this one? Because I know I, I, I'm, I'm going to let you do the heavy lifting on most of this, but uh, I, I feel like I keep coming away with just, yeah, it made me happy. And sometimes that's enough, but. Uh... I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I said it earlier quite accidentally. I didn't plan on it, but it's, it's, you know, if, if you take away anything from this conversation, it really is just, you get to watch amazing actors mm-hmm. in gears. You don't usually see them in. You talk about, you know, you, never remember seeing Harvey Keitel this warm before I, I, you'd rarely see William Hurt this, this, this sort of, uh, befuddled. Like he's, 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 you know, he's in emotional distress at the beginning of this movie and not in a showy intense way. He's just lost. And you quickly find out why. And to, you know, his arc is how he pulls out of that through these interactions with these people. And it's, I, 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 it's, I, I'd love to have a conversation with, with uh, some of our youngers about William Hurt because I have no understanding of what they – if they even know who he is or what, or what he is to them. But William Hurt was such a major figure in the 80s, and I grew up with him as this really towering figure in my mind. I, you know, we've, I've talked many times on this show about how much the big chill means to me. William Hurt is a colossal – <laughs> presence when I think back about when I was learning about film and loving film for the first time. And so to see him do this in this movie is just a sheer joy for me, as it is to watch Harvey Keitel deliver that last monologue. Keitel is one of my very favorite actors and has been so undersung for so long. There's that wonderful line in David Thompson's book, The Biographical Dictionary of Film, where he talks about uh, uh, oh, to be Harvey Keitel, to be the great... Think about the Think about what it would like to to play Harvey Keitel in a movie that you would be probably the greatest actor of your generation to be restless in your artistic pursuits and yet to constantly be second banana to De Niro to, to never be the most famous guy, even though you should be, he said, it's such a great part and De Niro would probably get it. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> that's how I feel about Keitel who I adore in everything and it's this is one of my very favorite Keitel performances. Uh, it's so fun to talk about this after recently going back to Mean Streets again for I don't know the hundredth time uh, to to see you know, those two performances twenty two years apart. Uh, you just realize the the breadth and scope of what he's accomplished is just magnificent. There's a uh, there's that great moment where Paul and Rashid uh, bump into Augie at the bar, and yes. and. Kaitel is just so charming in that he's out there with a date and, and it's such a charming, just charismatic moment. 
but he can also, you know, he, he's Harvey Keitel. He carries this, uh, you know, this background with him that a few scenes later when Rashid's working at the store and makes a mistake, you know, I, I instantly had a oh shit moment. <laughs> like, where is this movie going now? Because I know Harvey Keitel and I, I, I don't know that this turns out well for Rashid. Which then leads into another great scene where Paul kind of plays Peacemaker between yes. Rashid and Augie, which is, again, it, it brings up a plot point that the movie had mentioned maybe five minutes earlier with uh, with some discovered money. It gets rid of that money right there. Doesn't have to mention that again, but it's, uh, it just sets up that wonderful, very funny scene where, uh, you know, you have Harold Perrineau, who is going toe-to-toe with Harvey Keitel, uh, just in terms of, you know, kind of giving back a little bit of smugness, a little bit of, uh, you know, busting his chops a little bit. And it's just refusing it's, to lose an inch of face. Yeah. That's what that sequence is about. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so well played. Um, I haven't seen uh, Harold Perrineau in many things lately uh, since Lost. Um, but he is he's really good in this. It's. It's again. It's a role that a any other young actors may have gotten lost in, but he he plays it with kind of a wisdom past his years and a confidence that I, I haven't seen in a young actor in a while. Um, his moment where he first confronts Forrest Whitaker's character uh, again. That's going toe to toe with another great actor and not backing down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. It's not in an angry way. It is in a just a confident. You know I. I know what I'm doing here. I know how to deal with people. Uh, and it just leads to another great thread for the movie to go down. Um, and I think yep. this was, was this Ashley Judd's first movie as well? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, I don't think it's the first, but it was one of the first. Okay. Uh, she I gets... did all, all, all those. It's been too long since I've thought about like when <laughs> Ruby in Paradise came out and, <laughs> other stuff she did early on but it, yes it's one of the very early ones yeah she's she gets one scene in this movie and she's fantastic and you'll remember it yep it, it, it is a yeah i i mean I, I could just maybe i should just tell people to go see the movie um <laughs> but i am <laughs> i i am really glad you brought up this movie to talk uh talk about because uh i i, I really enjoyed this i will be going back and watching this one again over the years um, yeah, it's just one of my favorite things to do is just like you say, watch good actors in conversation together. Movies where they just get to talk is one of my favorite things. And, uh, this was much better than Mallrats, I have to say. <laughs> and if you really love it and want to dig just a little deeper, you can actually do was, it was released. I doubtful it's still in print, but the screenplay was published uh, along with the screenplay for Blue in the Face, and additionally in that booklet was the original short story that that Oster wrote that uh, that was published in the New York Times Christmas Day in the early '90s called Augie Wren's Christmas Story, and uh, it's it's really great to read that story and to see the germ that that came that that developed into that movie. That those those two big speeches that you like so much, those two big scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they, you know, where he, where he flips through the, all the photographs and the story Kytel tells at the end are both in that story, are okay. both in the short story. And uh, to realize that they knew exactly where to start from and how brilliantly they weave all of the themes around uh, what's established in those two sequences is, is just, it, it gives you, 
it, it it's one of those few instances where you can see really good storytellers doing their job. <laughs> there are very few times when you get to see it develop like that, that things don't just spring whole cloth at once. They are developed and they are massaged uh, through the writing process. It's really great. It is. Uh, we haven't even really talked Wayne Wang much, and uh, I think this might be my only movie that I've seen by him. Um, but I... Uh, it's deceptively, you know, a movie like this makes it seem deceptively easy uh, to, you, you know, the idea is you just point your camera at, but, you know, it, it's really hard to make sure you get those performances out of those actors to, to kind of sell this reality, especially when that, that script is so literate. This is not, this is not a movie where people talk like people talk. This is a movie like people talk in novels. And I, he, yeah. he definitely sells it with, with energy and heart that, uh, again, uh, someone else could have made this and it'd be a thundering bore, um, just if, you, if you're not doing that right. Um, I'm looking at Wayne Wang's filmography in recent years and, uh, yeah, Made in Manhattan. There's nothing good as this there. I have to admit, I'm a, I, I am in the minority of quite liking Center of the World, which is the movie I think he made after this and after, well, after both of them, uh, which is a very... Uh, off-putting <laughs> little indie uh, with two actors that I love a great deal and I just enjoy watching the two of them together uh, and it was a very infamous movie for uh, for other reasons which we don't need to get into at the moment <laughs> but I actually like that movie um, and other than that yeah he I don't I don't know what he's been up to since made in Manhattan hmm. well he does a fantastic job with this and yeah I think that's a good place to leave it Um so this was our third, our third movie in our uh, five from ninety five, and you can go back and listen to our thoughts on seven and our thoughts on Mallrats. Uh, our next entry in this will be Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys, which I have not seen in a few years, so I am looking forward to revisiting that. Uh, and again, it's yet another Brad Pitt movie uh, after Fight Club last year <laughs> and seven a few weeks ago. Um, 95 was a really good year for Brad Pitt. So uh, so we'll be talking that in a few it was. weeks. It was a good year for him. Perry, in the meantime, where can people find you? You can find me on Facebook. You can hear me every Friday morning on 1290 WLBY AM in Ann Arbor on the Lucianne Lance Show. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. And, yeah, you can hear me probably squealing with the anticipation as I try to race through all the things that I want to see. They're going to leave the Criterion channel at the end of the month. <laughs> Is there a lot leaving in July or June? Uh, when we record this, I have got nine, I've got eight days left to see, uh, there's, there's three of the Boonwell films I would love to get to before they disappear. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I don't like how short some of those stay on there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. Disney plus doesn't take stuff off. I'll just say that. (laughs) No, they just edit Hamilton. They, they edit Hamilton and give us Artemis Fowl. (laughs) <laughs> thanks disney <laughs> well you can find me uh you can find me at bhm pop culture uh that's where i write my movie reviews you can find me on twitter and facebook uh i did forget my wife and i have launched a a website where we write occasionally it's called it's a uh, yoked.blog and you can listen to my other podcast uh wasting time which should be starting back up in the next few weeks after a 
coronavirus-related stand-down for the last few months. We will be back in a few weeks talking about 12 Monkeys. <laughs>